actually with the red pen and i was thinking oh the red Dang. pen is super nostalgic and I, I confess when i have been an instructor before in various settings uh, slashing papers with a red pen has been um unreasonably fun so <laughs> <laughs> so there's that mm-hmm. yeah i always thought if i ended up being an instructor for whatever reason i'd get a giant novelty uh stamp two giant novelty stamps made one with an a and then one with an s and just ka-chunk <laughs> to roll it on roll the ink on with a uh paintbrush yeah yeah get the wax seal or something yeah. i imagine that could be really satisfying yes so cool all right well speaking of editing and masterpieces and i will probably never write anything the caliber of c.s lewis but here we are <laughs> with c.s lewis <laughs> yes Welcome to the Word and Journey podcast, conversations with friends about stories that shape us and make us think, and some stories that are just for fun. We're busy people reading books in realistic increments. Follow along in the book and join in the conversation, or just sit back and enjoy. Our aim is to unpack the story and offer you things to ponder. Either way, thanks for being here. Here we are, folks. Early, early. Well, not ridiculously early. It's a reasonable hour. But welcome to the Word and Journey podcast. I'm Moses, and this is Jake. Hey, and we are your friendly, mildly caffeinated hosts for the morning. So. <laughs> um. Anyway, so chapter Great Divorce, chapter seven. Mm-hmm. These don't have chapter titles; they're just numbers. But aren't we all in the end? Just chapter numbers. Well, numbers in the end, but yeah. Sorry, I was oh. <laughs> trying to make a funny slash very sad joke. It did not land well. No, that's okay. Oh no, I was I was ex- assuming it would be like a movie reference or something, and I was thinking, oh, here's my chance to get cool points and know what the reference is. Uh, <laughs> uh, apparently, I, <laughs> apparently, I have failed, but that's okay. Okay, but chapter seven. What happens in the stunt one? So here we meet the hard bitten ghost and. Uh, yes, and it seems like it's become it's become a story of meeting ghosts, the ghosts from the bus, and they meet the bright people from the the other place, the the not hell place, and that's where the drama is. It's very a very character based story, which I kind of like. Well, I know so it's it's character based by structure, but it's it's very it seems more like concept based because there's not really a, a whole lot of world building that goes on and. I guess the plot, I guess there's plot because there's, there's progressive movement and everything, but it's very much the whole story really centers on the discussions and everything. But yes, Jake, what are some things that jumped out to you initially in this chapter? Oh gosh. Chapter seven feels so much like reading something from today, like quotes from today. Um, the hard bitten ghost, there's a, there's a line that I, I highlighted a number of his lines but the first one that i had really from his was like it's all propaganda of course there was never any question of our staying you can't eat the fruit and can't drink the water and uh, it takes all your time to walk on the grass a human being couldn't live here as all the idea is only an advertising stunt like this ghost is impressively cynical 
like seeing the beauty all around him, but just like the, the sheer amount of not, not really conspiracy, but just like, Oh no, it's all, it's all a plot. It's not what it's, what it's cracked up to be, or it's not what they're, they're showing you seems like so much of the, of the stuff that I hear these days between like, we've had, we've had major, major, major events over the last year now almost two years effectively but uh and even longer than that and it's always with that caveat of just like oh you don't see you don't understand i'm the one who's smarter and i you know you're just a sheep or whatever uh and it comes from all sides too this is not to say that any one particular side especially on the political spectrum is better but that was the first thing that kind of like oh wow yeah it it had sort of a doom scrolly flair to it that, that yeah. quote uh, I wonder, would would you actually read that quote again, uh, partly because there was distortion, but also because, uh, just, just, just so we can absorb it, uh, and the glory, the glory, the, the impressive cynicism of it again. Yeah. Uh, so this is where we find our protagonist. Um, he's just watched the guy trying to steal the apples and that didn't work out and get, kind of gets up and then sees this other guy. And so our author, uh, is walking and this guy says, are you thinking of going back? And the author replies, I don't know. Are, are you? And our, our hard-bitten cynical ghost replies, yes, I guess I've seen about all there is to see here. Uh, and then he goes on to say, it's, it's all propaganda. Of course, they never, there was never any question of our staying. You can't eat the fruit and you can't drink the water and it takes you all your time to walk on the grass. A human being couldn't live here. All that idea of staying is only an advertisement stunt. Yep. That's pretty, pretty cynical, pretty, pretty jaded. And Mm -hmm. it has the way that I described it in my notes was very, he he feels like a conspiracy theorist in a sense. And also with a really, really materialistic one. Mm -hmm. Um, He seems like someone who he's rejected the concept of anything being sacred and in a sense, like any sense that there can be, be progress in anything either, because like you're saying, he's, he's seen, he, he thinks he's seen heaven. He's definitely seen hell. And, uh, for him, it's all just a novelty. It's just, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the other, the other thing that was funny was, uh, he's talking about like all of the things that he's seen and he's seen Pekin and he's seen Niagara Falls and he's seen the pyramids and then Taj Mahal and Salt Lake City. And that was funny to me. Oh yeah. I've never seen Salt Lake City. I'm assuming it's wonderful, but <laughs> I've never thought of it as a tourist destination. <laughs> no, I mean I haven't, we I haven't either. We live what? Probably pretty equidistant. I'd say like a twelve hour drive or something like that. Yeah. It's but, there yeah. are there are many places I would like to drive through and deal with a twelve hour drive potentially. Salt Lake City has never been on the top of my list. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm sure there's incredible historical value and beautiful things, but yeah, it's, I, I don't usually think of Utah as exotic. Although uh, Southern Utah, like 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 Moab and Zion, mm-hmm. and I have been through some of those places, and those are radiant, majestic, glorious, all sorts of good things. So, yes. actually, one of my favorite addictions videos is set, I think, in Moab. Um, it's the the pleasure unwoven. Uh, lecture by Dr. Kevin McCauley, where he talks about like the brain component of addictions, which <laughs> that tangent has nothing to do with the great divorce, but, um, <laughs> but, but that's what we do here. We do tangents. Right. Um, it was anyway, kind of funny slash jarring again to see, uh, I mean, uh, the great divorce was written, what, 
100 years ago now? I'll wake up the page. Uh, 1946. Okay, so not quite a hundred so, years yeah, ago, getting, getting close. Uh, but getting close there. And uh, when it when he wrote Pekin, um, like Peking, Beijing, it took me a while to realize, like that's what he's talking about. I think, unless oh, goodness. I goodness, like unless I just don't know my history, which is also I, I wondered about that. I wonder, very, I wonder if that was, I wonder if that was Peking, yeah, and um, and yes, you know, city names, city names change. A little bit. I, I still have to. I, I guess so. Coming within like Orthodox Church and like how we talk about, it, I still have to remind myself that Constantinople is no longer called Constantinople. <laughs> yeah, because like we always just, we always refer it. to it as Constant. I know. I know. My dad sang me the song <laughs> when I visited him the other day. Uh, <laughs> that was funny. Um, but yeah, I, I, in my head, it's still Constantinople because that's how we talk about it. But anyway. So uh, cynicism, cynicism, mm-hmm. materialism. Yeah. And it's like this, this ghost seems to have such a very quick view of every, of everything, like talking about heaven, because that's what this place is, but also like some of these other beautiful and majestic, well, sure, we'll include Salt Lake City because I've never been. And that's me being hasty in judgment places like I've. I had the chance to live in uh, in China and travel through Beijing for a couple of weeks, and like, there's so much that's that's there, and this particular hard bitten ghost just you know, it's very all of his observations are very surface level, um, and you see that in his observation of heaven. And while it's just like I can't I can't do anything here, so why would I stay? Like, did you? Did you expand? Did you did you look? Did you try? Did you hear? Mm-hmm. Or are you just going based off of what you see here right now? This sort of you know microwave observation. Yeah, yeah. He does seem to reflect a lot of. I know. I, I do feel like he he reflects a lot of where where we're at today, and it, it does have very much this like doom scrolly social media flair to it of like. I don't believe in anything and I'm suspicious of everything and everybody's just out to get me and everybody's out to control me. And, um, and I don't really believe in everything. And I get the sense that he's feeling really resistant to being controlled mm-hmm. or duped or, or manipulated. Um, which again, which thing I think I see, see also in, in, in our world media and everything today. Um, it's a lot of people who are like, I think really, really brash about their own opinions because they, I mean, maybe, I mean, some, some of them have done, done their own research around it and, you know, can at least stand on that. But I think a lot of other people will like bluster because they're maybe uncertain about themselves or they're, they know manipulation can happen or maybe they've been manipulated before and, and they don't want that, which, which I, which I get. I mean, yeah. I, um, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, a disillusionment. Uh, phenomenon of I was expecting something living in the wake of that living in the disappointment of that I feel like actually so one of the one of the passages that stood out for me was a little later I think our protagonist is saying says something like there there, there seems to be some idea that if one stays here one would get well solider grow acclimatized you know noting it is difficult to be there uh because they're the grass hurts and all of that uh, but then the ghost says, I know about all that. Same old lie. People have been telling me that sort of thing all my life. They told me in the nursery that if I were good, I'd be happy. And they told me at school that Latin would get easier as I went on. 
After I'd been married a month, some fool was telling me that there were always difficulties at first, but with tact and patience, I'd soon settle down and like it. And all through two wars, what didn't they say about the good time coming if only I'd be a brave boy and go on being shot at? Of course, they'll play the old game here if anyone's fool enough to listen. I don't know. I, I resonated a lot with that one. I mean, especially, mm. you know, he's he's talking about marriage being kind of disappointing and frustrating, which there's aspects of that in, in my story, too. Sure. And marriage is disappointing and frustrating. I mean, I have a, a lovely saintly wife who is way too good for me. But I I feel like reflecting on, on my experience, I, I think the problem for me was that I was I was handed a story about what marriage is or would be what you know sex is and would be what what parenting is and would be and in one sense i kind of feel like the story i was given as a kid even as a kid in church was too small like mm-hmm. there is this idea that you know i mean i mean the you know there's this aspect of and, and a lot of um, you know youth group guys that are now my age, I think I'll, I'll feel this. Or there's this idea of like you know keep your virginity, and then you have a, you know an awesome, awesome sex life, and uh, it'll be so great. And, I know you, I know you and I have ranted about this before, but uh, and it's you know not the case at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and I you know had to kind of discover that in some crushing ways. Um, but but I think there is the sense though of you know, you know, keep yourself and then the prize will be awesome or, you know, strive for this thing, this, you know, very specific, you know, marital structure and, you know, you will be fulfilled and happy. And this is like the end all be all of life. And, and there's kind of this aspect there, there can be this flair of you are going to have like this ultimate goodness, happy ending. And that's really about your pleasure and satisfaction. And not not really about anything heroic, and so so I, although to say like the, the story I was handed was one that was centered on me being happy, me being mm-hmm. pleasured, me being satisfied, me being safe and secure, and nothing so heroic as like well actually marriage is going to be for your salvation, you know, kind of in the way that martyrdom is for your salvation, and you know you, your purpose of getting married is to help the other person be saved, and they're going to help you be saved because of the ways that we try each other, right. The story I feel like I, I I entered marriage with was more me as a consumer, a consumer of the marriage product and expecting certain results and then being dissatisfied with it. Yes. And I feel like a better story would have been something like, hey, here's this heroic struggle that you get to engage upon and there's going to be struggle and there's going to be suffering and that's going to be good for you and it's going to be normal and you should embrace it and not avoid it. And those are some things that I kind of cognitively understand now and I'm kind of trying to embrace. It's, it's hard. But I feel like that, that might have set me up better because then I wouldn't be disappointed as much. You know, as mm-hmm. it was, I feel like, well, I had a, I was given these consumerist narratives, you know, and not just for marriage, but, you know, for, for, for work and for school and for, for life. And uh, the, the products fail me because like, I'm not pleasured and I'm not satisfied and I'm not content and I'm not happy with life um, because so much of my life instinctively tends to be around avoiding struggle. And, and that's just impossible. And so then I'm just disappointed and jaded and hard bitten and, Oh my gosh, this chapter is about me. Oh no. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it, it's, it's been an interesting to watch the story of marriage and what it means 
starting to unfold and change in society and especially Christian society um, a little bit over the last, especially uh, maybe I've just noticed it more over the last year. But thing, things like um, talking through how the, especially the evangelical church is raising a generation of sexual repressives that don't know how to deal with any of this. And, you know, there's lots of promises. Sorry, did you say sexual repressives? Yes. <laughs> uh, or just not having any idea how, how to deal with this. And granted, I'm, I'm unmarried. And so I'm learning a lot of this very, very secondhand. And I have the actual benefit of um, being in a part of culture where, you know, shining, shying away from all of the, the difficult and the weird, because human relations are weird. Marriage must be outright strange instead of just you know peppering it with the whole like oh everything's great i just love him so much that sort of thing it's like yeah you love him but sometimes you probably want to murder him too and that's kind of okay like that's human emotion and dealing with it love real honest love isn't just like the the nice happy feelings or whatever crap it's working through it. It's slogging through the mess because you care about this person. And to your point, absolutely, because you care for their salvation and they care for yours, ideally. it's I have at least that benefit, uh, which has been good. And also speaking to the whole consumeristic side of it, like especially for males, holy cow. I've talked with a few people growing up in more conservative, especially Baptist churches and their their entry into marriage and some of them have wives who are very much like oh no we are not doing that sort of a thing like (laughs) the go get in the kitchen make me a sandwich (laughs) sort of stuff oh yeah kind of not quite necessarily that bad but pretty dang close so it's i'm glad with with all of this cultural chaos with all of all of the questioning that's going on, especially within our cohort of millennial Christians and how, and that is a very wide slice that I'm talking about the deconstructionism, the everything, like all of these are being thrown into questioning, which is exactly what I think is important. I read a quote a while ago, like to doubt is divine. And there's a lot to unpack with that. But the idea of like, you can never doubt, or if you ever have doubt, you're a bad person is, is wrong. And I, I think scripture backs that up too. And so that kind of, to me, is somewhat personified in this, in this hard bitten ghost. Like this guy has not a single doubt in his mind of his own assuredness. He doubts everything else around him, but he doesn't doubt his own thoughts. He doesn't doubt his own beliefs. And that's, that's where the real work happens. And uh, it's, it's really tragic to see kind of that attitude. And mm-hmm. it's really prevalent within our culture. Yeah, I can see that in this character. He has, in that sense, he has a little bit in common with, I think it was one of the characters before we, we talked about the guy who was, you know, caught up in like, well, this is just my honest opinion. And that's my honest opinion. And very much um, like disbelieving, dismissing everything else, except for whatever he conjures in his own head, whether or not that's, intellectually based or not and it feels like so the character we're going to meet in chapter eight um there, there's some almost some similarity there too of like i just i lost a connection in my head she she's someone who has a lot of shame burdens and doesn't want to be seen mm-hmm. what did i see the connection was there anyway 
could be room for doubt. There maybe should be room for doubt. I think in, in Orthodox teaching, we'll, we'll talk about blessed doubt and we'll look at, uh, you know, St. Thomas, the Apostle Thomas, and really commend him for for having his doubts and for fleshing them out and for exploring them. And because of that, we, we, we can all believe more and we have more testimony and witness. And I mean, I feel like that's part of the, part of the prize of a doubting process is mm-hmm. whatever you come out with on the other end, you, you really own. And it would be, it'd be great if people in their doubts had someone to curate them and someone to not look at them as crisis, not chase them away. And also not say, oh, you're doubting. We'll just throw everything out altogether because that's, that's just the other extreme. And, right. and I do see a lot of people doing that. And that's, you know, it's working in extremes and that doesn't tend to be helpful in most mm-hmm. cases. Yeah, absolutely. And it's one of, one of uh, the things that just struck me. So I had always had just kind of a, uh, it never felt right. Apologetics. And the, the uh, like the study of apologetics, very, very big in especially evangelical circles, um, which is basically, for those who don't know, it's um, proving the faith is your goal. And whatever you're defining faith is, that's that's another bit of a question. But it's, you know, prove, like yeah. you're trying to prove in typically an argumentative way or whatever um, your assertions. Right. In a very intellectual uh-huh. debate context, usually. It is. Yeah. And that for me, like somebody finally put it uh, in terms that I could understand, like why it just never quite sat right with me. It's because it, you're not looking for truth. You're assuming truth and then trying to back it up. But anything that kind of attacks your view or that might unravel a particular part of your view is often either dismissed out of hand hidden away or begins to really shatter your reality. Whereas it doesn't necessarily mean your entire premise was wrong. It means that particular part was, or that particular understanding was. And again, scripture never calls us to something like apologetics. You know, Paul's letters can be interpreted that way a little bit, but God much more wants us to be in the business of seeking real honest truth. And so while I do get some heebie-jeebies about the, um, the deconstructing community, what I have seen in my own personal experience, very anecdotal, has been this beautiful awakening to, no, let's find out what's actually going on. And yeah, I, I think that is a really beautiful thing too, to say, I want to know and I want to understand. And beyond just the apologetic, how do I defend my argument? But, um, but I want to actually know truth. I want to know who God is. I want to know how to live. And, yeah. and, I, and I would concur too. I feel like what, um, what gets celebrated most in scripture and in the, the teachings of the church is how we demonstrate our apologetic. That's part of why I suppose the witness of the martyrs is so powerful is, and then sometimes, sometimes there was conversation like, you know, St. Catherine of Alexandria, she was, she was repeated to have like, you know, beat a whole flock of theologians, you know, before, you know, by the time she was 18, you know, so very, very smart lady, very intelligent. And then she was also martyred, but there were, you know, it's this, the statement of the martyrs were like, well, it's by our life and by our death that we demonstrate what we believe and that is really real. And that has tended to be extremely compelling. Mm-hmm. So maybe we should, talk less and die more or something. Oh. Well, maybe not always die, but <laughs> <laughs> but die, die to oneself. Right. Like that is, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Yes. 
I guess the other uh, the other moment with this uh, hard bitten jaded ghost is a little later when they're talking about should he should he keep acclimatizing and he's <clears throat> Megan ranting against you know the the people who run the show are so clever and powerful and uh, and all this poppycock about growing harder so that the grass doesn't hurt our feet now. There is an example. What would you say if you went to a hotel where the eggs were all bad? And when you complained to the boss, instead of apologizing and changing his dairy man, he just told you that if you tried, you'd get to like bad eggs in time. Which, oh, the days when we had dairy men and <laughs> dairy women. Uh, but anyway, I think what I was thinking with this one was, uh, again, this disillusionment, um, but also this sense of I've been, I've experienced, um, <laughs> mornings are hard. uh there's a sense that i think of 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 the trauma narrative really Uh, this is maybe someone who's experienced exploitation or experienced gaslighting or manipulation or something and and been told oh things will just get better just put up with it which that can be said um there 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 is a there is a um yeah that's that's my shower alarm going off um there is a there's a way where enduring something and putting up with something and sticking it out can have a lot of spiritual benefit. And when that's chosen freely by a person, I think that can be really powerful. And there's also a way where if I try to give that narrative to you or push that on you, then there's a lot of potential for that to be really abusive. Yes. And just like, I'm not taking responsibility for myself. It's all your fault. It's all your problem. Like you do more work, you do more work, you do more work. And and that's happened a lot as well. And that does happen a lot. And I would say anywhere there's a power structure, there's a vulnerability to that. So I can, I can, I can feel this character responding to something like that, which again, it's part of the sad reality of how people work and something to be really aware of. Again, not to outright dismiss hierarchy and authority and structure and, and struggle at, at sure. all, but it, I guess uh, there's, you know, for us who have any sort of power over others, there um, we need to be really careful, really gentle. And there's a big difference between me imposing a struggle on you versus you freely choosing to enter that struggle of your own accord. Mm-hmm. And that would be the better thing that we want. I take your silence as affirmation. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, I'm I'm in complete agreement. Cool. I feel better. Chapter eight is a short-ish, kind of short chapter. Mm-hmm. I love the, yes. it, it flows into here in chapter eight. It's the very end of chapter seven. But then the, the hard bitten ghost before he leaves is like, ah, but have you thought about what it rains? Because you're going to be whole, full of holes. Right. Yes. It, Which is, yeah, something we haven't thought about to now. And yes, now that I think about it, that sounds awful. So, which as a storytelling move feels great because it's more of like the rising action, the escalation of the problem. It almost feels like chapter eight maybe begins like the dark night of the soul, which Mm -hmm. is, is, is not just a, you know, inspirational language It's actually a literary, literary technique or a literary device where now our hero is kind of at the bottom and questioning everything. And feeling desperation and at this point could either lose everything or find some hope of redemption and find a way to win in the end. But this is where our our hero, I keep wanting to call him Jack, 
And I think it's because I don't know. I, I just recently watched Fight Club and did like some <laughs> review on that. And like, like that hero, that protagonist doesn't actually have a name, but we kind of unofficially call him Jack because you know he is. You know, um, there's Fight Club references to make there. But anyway, also C.S. Lewis was called Jack. But anyway, so Jack is by the river, and and he now has doubt and. I don't know that he was ever completely confident in the journey to begin with up till mm-hmm. now. Um, he was, he's, he's, he has seemed uncertain about himself and uncertain about what's going on. Um, but more or less just kind of like, oh, okay, let's just see what happens and kind of curious. But, uh, but now he seemed, now he seems nervous. Now he seems, he's thinking about what will happen when I get rained on? Will there be any of me left? And what about this doubt? And what about the bright people? And can we, can I trust them? Can I trust their intentions? Mm-hmm. Uh, some of that actually felt very idenic to me in that if you um, best best I can understand, if I'm understanding correctly, is that when the tempter came to Eve in the garden, one of the things, one of the main aspects of that was he was getting her to question question her relationship with with God and questioning God's motivation. And, you know, does does God really care for you? And did God really say this? And uh, you know, but oh, by the way, you know, you're you could, you know, God's keeping you from becoming like Him because if you eat this fruit, you'll this fruit is like this shortcut to to theosis and to becoming like God, and God's keeping you from it. And can you really trust Him? And it seems like at this point, that's being played out as as our character has been kind of trusting the bright people to have some good intent and get him to the better place. Now he's like. But what? What if? And really? And so there's a deterioration deterioration there, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of in the midst of all of this questioning that he sees, you know, yet yet another woman. And uh, actually, this is not the first woman we've seen in the book, I guess. Uh, but the first one that we actually really hear from pure story ish from and it's you know I, it's interesting like he, our protagonist jack lewis whatever he is he's going through doubts of his own and each one of these characters thus far has really reflected a major portion of um attitudes of doubt i guess and so this whole this whole question is hi, having where um i highlighted one line like how like what if this whole trip was allowed by the ghosts merely or was allowed to the ghosts merely to just mock us and make fun of us. And it's again, just that, that deep seated, like um, kind of making it about yourself a lot of the time. Uh, and, and the idea of selfishness really kind of breaks into weird ways. I had a mentor of mine really show me that like, I have a hard time, um, uh, allowing myself to really be present sometimes. Um, I have that fun millennial zeitgeist of like, we're basically vampires. We have to be invited to be allowed anywhere. Um, and he, he told me like, no, that's actually like, that's actually kind of a little bit selfish, not in the way of like, you're, you're just hoarding all of the resources for yourself, but you're hoarding yourself for yourself. People want, to be with you. They want to, uh, they want to share your life and they want to share their life with you. Um, and it's that, you know, that weird 
selfishness is really the wrong word, but self-focus, self-centeredness maybe has a way of breaking into so many different aspects of our life in weird and horrible ways. Um, and I think this is, this is definitely a, a big portion of that. And we see that going through with the next ghost that our protagonist meets too. Yeah. When you're talking about the, uh, how we relate to being, being known and ensuring ourselves, this makes me think a lot about, I mean, I, I, I interact with this in my own life. I, I crave being known and I also fear it. And, and I see this playing out in my counseling work as well. Uh, you know, people with a lot of, of attachment distress and attachment failures, uh, as well as trauma also. And, and we could, in, in some sense, we could say those are a spectrum of each other, but you know, in what often happens is, um, what should happen in very early childhood is there should be a caring and attuned, empathetic, emotionally responsible adult who can respond to you, consistently be present with you and respond to you in whatever you're feeling and make space for your feelings. Like that's, that's the gold standard. That's what should be happening for all of us. And that doesn't happen for a lot of us. Uh, and we get variations of there's no one there or there's someone unpredictably there or there's someone overwhelmingly there or there's someone there who's actually hurting me and and all of the chaos ensues from there. But from that, that's how we learn what's safe or not in relating. And we always have needs to connect. That That's a fundamental human need. Uh, and the need never goes away, but we get good at ignoring it or obsessing over it. and um, it could be that a lot of our, you know, quote, selfishness is, you know, related to that is like, I, I have these needs that I'm dancing around in some way and either I'm trying to ignore it or meet it in some way. Mm -hmm. All that to say, being known, the, the art, the act, the sacred moment of able to know myself and share myself and, and also know you when that can happen is really beautiful, really special. And it often takes a lot of work to get there. And there's a lot of people that are, that are terrified of this. And, and I see in, in this character, this, uh, this lady ghost here, uh, that seems to be where, where she's at too, is really scared of being known, really scared mm -hmm. of being seen. And, and I, I was feeling sad on her behalf because that narrative is, is a lot of what, what I see with people and, and I can see, you know, there's like a lot of burden there and a lot of loneliness and a lot of pain. Yeah. And, and I, and also I, I have experienced both ends. Like I have experienced the terror of being seen and known and like to the terror of being exposed, but then having taken that risk and have it work out many times, glory to God. Like I've, I've been, I've had some really amazing people in my life who have wanted to know me and have let me know them. And in those moments, there's so much beauty, there's so much healing, there's so much security. And, and it really does, it does a number on the shame narrative. Mm -hmm. When we carry burdens of shame, those burdens gain strength in isolation. And the more we hide, the stronger the shame is. But the, the initial terrifying moment of like coming out in the open, it does take away the shame because now I'm known and now I'm, when I'm known and accepted, you can't feel shame there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's terrifying. Um, and I still deal with it. I still struggle with it sometimes, even with my closest friends. Like there's, there's sometimes where I just, you know, I retract a little bit and 
you know, it's, it's that, like you said, that wonderful moment where I am known and I know you and we love each other. Um, cause, and that's so much of what I, what I still struggle with, with, um, we'll call it my own, uh, de jour theology. Uh, you know, I know better theoretically, but it's not necessarily how I feel and it's not necessarily even how I act. Um, the idea that, you know, God does know me and loves me, not in spite of me, not in spite of my flaws and problems, but loves me, period. Um, and I think a lot of, a lot of the fears that we have, certainly a lot of my fears and a lot of the not great ways that we act is a lot of the time birthed out of not really understanding that and not not living into it because it's it's tough it's it's difficult and when society tells us something different and we experience something different by people who we are told are to are supposed to be the ones who love us and care for us whether that's parent clergy person teacher some sort of tip some sort of authority figure especially um it gets really difficult to lean back into that and it's it's not a struggle I wish on anybody. <laughs> yeah. Any sort of struggle in isolation or in, in self-imposed isolation, that uh, just, ah, uh, that's so sad and usually not necessary either. Yeah. There's, there, there's usually going to be some way to be with someone when everything's better. <laughs> everything's better together. Uh, I'm sure there's a goofy <laughs> song about that somewhere, but yes. The one thing that they say here is about shame is that um, he says, don't you remember on earth there were these things too hot to touch with your finger, but you could drink them all right. Shame is like that. If you will accept it, if you will drink the cup to the bottom, you will find it very nourishing, but try to do anything else with it and it scalds. And something about that seems to capture this idea of there's, there's struggle to go through. There's, there's work to do. There's risk to take, and and that is, that is a very fair thing to say. Is that all all relationship is risk, and we love our ideas about vulnerability, vulnerability, transparency, authenticity. All of that is very risky, and that's that's a legitimate concern mm-hmm. because the other person could punish you for that, or could reject you, or could do something unhealthy, and and sometimes that does happen, and that's part of why that risk is is a real risk, right. But it, it's that's the threshold to go through for any sort of connection. All, all good connection comes after taking the risk of exposing yourself. And it can be a well-calculated risk and a strategic risk and a kind of like a, a wiser risk. But it's there's yeah the vulnerability, the risk, the intimacy, all of that hangs out together all the time. It can be uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. I think it's worth it. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's um, really personified quite well with this particular ghost because she's running away from her mentor partner. I don't know. This person that she has met, the, the, the really, really, the real, real person. Yeah. Um, because she's transparent and she's very, she's very self-conscious of, you know, people will just see like (laughs) literally people will see right through me. Um, and very, very self-conscious of like being around all of these other bright people, these real people. 
and this ghost or not ghost, this real person is, um, trying to, trying to say and show like, we don't care. We don't care what you look like. Um, and, and to the fact that she's going to become more and more like them anyway. Yeah. Yeah. There, yeah, I guess the, the other dimensions of that, like, like you're saying, yeah, like, uh, you know, you're afraid of being seen, but really like, I'm, I'm just as ghostly as you. And there's as much I don't like about myself either. So, so in that sense, like the music playing ground is actually a lot more level. Um, and there's also the sense too, that, well, okay. So you're afraid people are going to see right through you. So become more solid or, you know, and I, I, I want to say this one carefully, because again, this is something one must choose for themselves rather than having mm-hmm. this random podcaster put this on you. But, <laughs> you know, the, the journey I could embrace would be to say, well, I think people are going to see right through me and find that there's nothing of substance. Well, what if I went out and found substance? Can I go out and become a more substantial person? Can I find mm-hmm. thoughts to think about? Can I develop my beliefs? Can I take care of myself? Can I think about things? And and it doesn't that doesn't have to mean I'm going to go study a bunch of stuff or read a bunch of books. It could just mean I get good at being present with myself. So I at least know my own experience and I at least know my own thoughts, my own needs and my own self. And if I can at least bring that to a conversation, then there is, I think, already more substance than someone who never reflects on themselves at all. So again, that's not necessarily easy, but it is, I think, accessible for anyone who cares to, to access it, access it, access it, access to access. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Oh, anyway. Yeah, so that's that's those two chapters. And mm-hmm. well, I mean, there is that kind of last paragraph at the end of chapter eight that gets very like, wow, okay. Um all oh, right, the unicorns. Yeah. yeah. Uh so this this woman ghost is saying, Nope, not gonna go. And then the bright person blows a horn, and then there's thundering hoof steps. Um, there's unicorns that show up, red gleams in their eyes, nostrils flashing indigo, uh, or and nostrils, excuse me, and the flashing indigo of their horns. And our protagonist ran, <laughs> and so we don't know what happened. So I'm I'm very curious to see. I'm very curious too. Yeah, those sound like some really really mighty beasts. Uh, which okay, yes, now the story is officially weird because there's a flock of raging unicorns. But yes. Anyway. Yes, we'll have to see there. Uh, I, I I cheated and I turned the page, and it looks like next chapter we meet George McDonald. That'll be great. Also, it's uh, mentioned someone with a strong Scotch accent, so which I guess they mean Scottish, but that reminds me of Scotch. And I think mm. you have conversations about Scotch and maybe socialism as well. I do. So, uh, may, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> is this where I plug my stuff? Yeah. yeah so I am I am one of the co-hosts on a podcast called Scotch and Socialism. We recently finished our first season. We'll be probably starting recording again uh, back in August of this year. And uh, it's been fun. We just get together. We talk about semi-current topics. We've done anything ranging from cancel culture to economics to... um, I really liked uh, your one about drugs. Drugs was my favorite, probably still of all nine episodes. <laughs> uh, we do have an episode yeah. coming up about the housing, like affordable housing crisis. Um, 
And also, I'm excited to talk with talk about this. We haven't recorded it yet, but it's basically like, should we save humanity? <laughs> and if yeah. you if you listen to our our season finale episode, we had like a very five minute blurb for a number of different topics, and this was one that one of my co hosts and I kind of disagree on. And so I'm I'm excited to to talk about it. So yeah, it's it's been a lot of fun. That'll be a lot of fun. Yeah. Well, maybe maybe folks in preparation for. Uh, Scotch and Socialism season two. Maybe maybe watch uh, the Battlestar Galactica show again because that was essentially like the crux question of that whole series is is humanity worth saving? Yeah, and so it's it's a, it's a good question. But yes, perhaps for Word and Journey next episode we will have Scotch in honor of Jake Ooh. and George McDonald. Maybe. Yes. We'll have to are record we going in the to, evening. I was going to say, are we going to have scotch at seven o'clock in the morning? <laughs> <laughs> oh, uh, I have to check a box on the screening form for that one. I know, so, right? Right. Uh, anyway, well, I should probably end. Otherwise, we'll just be here forever, which with you would not be so bad because I enjoy same. you very much. Uh, very much the same. Thank you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for ranting over some ideas with me. And thank you, listener, for hanging out with us and sticking with us. And please come back next time. Please, 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 please. Also, by this time, <laughs> check out check out our Patreon. And by this time, my website should be up as well, mosesbarnabay.com. And uh, if anybody wants to submit their photos or artwork for me to post with full credit, I could use some pretty pictures. So anyway, that being said. <laughs> awesome. Oh, yes. So... Goodbye. Just goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>